Well, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I know that we had a great Thanksgiving in my house, and Thanksgiving has this one thing that every year just really makes me smile and laugh. This idea that we're going to spend a day, set aside a day to where we're just going to be grateful for all that God has done for us, and then by three o'clock in the afternoon, all we can do is talk about the things we don't have in our life that we want. It's Black Friday time. We're talking about what we want and for Christmas and the different gifts. And this year, the same thing happened in my house. We don't even leave the Thanksgiving table before it's, what do you want for Christmas? And all of a sudden, our minds are racing. Anybody else have these conversations at the Thanksgiving table? So I didn't know. And I don't want to get a lame gift. And so I thought, all right, what's the cool gift that I can do? And being a middle-aged dude who's clearly lost it, I went to rollingstone.com and I looked up the top trending gifts. And these are what I found. And maybe this will be maybe something that's beneficial to you. But one of the things I saw that I think is pretty awesome is this thing called an uni fry-up. And it is 100 or 250 uh, but with it, you can make your own personal pan pizza in its own like little bake oven. I mean, it sounds pretty good. So that's a good thing. If you are one who works out or maybe you're in middle school or high school and you've got to use a locker all the time, they now have a tap lock that you can uh, put your finger on and it'll open up. You don't have to worry about combinations. It's only $90. Seems like a bargain, right? The best gift that I can think of right now that I'm not going to spend $1,500 on, but if I had an extra $1,500, I want one of these pellet grills. I hear they're awesome, and I know that they've even made some believers out of, uh, out of several people who were doubters because they keep the heat in, the, in the, the grill at the perfect temperature, and you don't even have to, it'll give you an alert on your phone now. Technology has come a long way. But the thing that I think is the stupidest trending gift that I just want to share with you is called the Invisible Shield UV Sanitizer. So here's the, here's the idea. You hold your phone in your hand or in your pocket all day, and whenever you get home, you can sanitize it from yourself. Seems like a great waste of $60 to me. And all these gifts, all these presents, all these things that you can buy, and what I want us to understand is that the greatest gift we have is something that isn't spelled present with a T, but presence with a P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, the presence of God in our life. And this is what I want us to focus on. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 45 through 52. And we're going to focus on the presence of God that he is with us in all different times and situations as we live our lives, as we think about God's presence. Now, to give you background on to what's taken place so far in this text, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Now, back then they only counted the men. There were women and children there too, so our best estimates is Jesus had just fed somewhere between twenty and 25,000 people. He reached into a little boy's lunch basket and just fed and fed and fed. He gave fish that had never swam. He gave bread that had never seen dirt. He just gave all this food, provided all this food, this very visible miracle. In fact, it's the most visible miracle that Jesus ever had. It touched more people than any other miracle he ever had outside of his raising from the dead. And this is something that had propelled the people who experienced the miracle to think that Jesus was actually the Messiah. But their idea of the Messiah was quite different than why Jesus came. They're thinking they finally had a leader, a ruler who could provide the way, who could pave the way to get them out of captivity from 
the Romans, who would lead them away from Herod to where they would have independence and become the world power. They would become the might and the strength of the world. And so in their brains, they had this idea. They're ready to make Jesus not only the leader of the revolution, they're ready to make him king because he fed their bellies. And this is where we pick up the, the text. It says immediately. So as soon as these things are happening, as soon as these people are ready to bring about this revolution, make Jesus their king, immediately he, this is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So basically they got in a boat to go where the feeding of the 5,000 took place and he sent them back where they were. This is really, really important. When Jesus sees this uprising, when he sees these people who are trying to influence him to be king, he finds his disciples and he sends them away. They were in a situation Jesus did not want them to be in. They were surrounded by people in a mentality that was contrary to his purpose. They were there and there's the idea of them being peer pressured or drug into this mentality that he was going to come and kill Caesar, kill Rome and overtake everything and Jesus saw this taking place and he drove them away. He forced them against their will. This is what it means whenever it says he made them. He pushed them out of the scene. They wanted to stay, be a part of the crowd, be a part of the party, be in that scene and Jesus made them leave. They got into the boat and he pushed them away from the scene. Very important. A lot of times we think as strong believers, we need to be right in the middle and hold firm. But we see an area of temptation, a scene taking place that wasn't good for the disciples. And Jesus says, go, get out. I don't want you here. He made them leave. Go to the other side of the lake. Get far away from it. To Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, I love what is taking place here. Jesus immediately, whenever he sees this crowd coming to do something that was contrary to his will and his purpose, he sends the disciples away. He gets them out of there. You've got all these people, 20,000, 25,000 people who are there who want to make him king. And Jesus is having none of it. He did not come to kill. He came to give his life. And he's driving these people away. And then we see this example of God's prominence and his power and his purpose and his will that we could overlook here, but I don't want us to. He drives them away. He gets rid of the crowd. He dismisses the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, after he had gotten rid of everybody, after he had cast them all to their homes and told them all to go away and leave them alone, after this has happened, he went to the mountain to pray. I want you to understand what is taking place here. This is the most monumental uh, miracle in the ministry of Jesus. This is greater than anything he had done, greater in, in size and scope than anything he had done. 
More people witnessed it. Everybody was there to celebrate him. Everybody was there to pray. Everybody was there just to talk about his might and his strength. They wanted him to be king. In our mindset, everything that we would want, Jesus was experiencing here. Power, fame, praise. And where we might have great victories and tell everybody about it, Jesus didn't want anything to do with that. He didn't want to get caught up in a moment. He didn't want to get caught up in a victory. He was focused on his task, and he drives everybody away. And then he does something different, something that's actually really common today. He self-isolates. He drives everybody away from him, and then he gets alone. He secludes himself. He quarantines himself from the crowd. He goes to the mountain, and the Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus, who just fed 20 to 25,000 people. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray. I love the example here that Jesus isolated himself to pray. And as we look at the Gospels, we understand that he's praying for his ministry, right? He's, he's praying for his disciples. Verse 52 says that they didn't understand the miracle. They missed it. They missed that God was providing them the bread of life. Because all they could think about was their physical, tangible need. But Jesus was there praying for more. He wanted them to understand his purpose. That he was a Messiah, not to set them free from Rome, but to set them free from their sins. And he's praying for them. And he's not praying there for like a few minutes or a few hours. Like we're seeing six, seven, eight, nine hours of prayer. Jesus is isolated by himself praying for these people who did not understand the gospel. Did not understand why he was there. Didn't understand that the chosen one, that the Messiah was there to give his life as a ransom. To die on the cross for their sins. He's praying for focus for himself. And he's praying that his disciples would understand. Isolated. Away from all the hoopla, away from all the fanfare, he's praying. And as he's praying, he's praying for his disciples. He is interceding for his disciples, praying that their hearts would be open to receive the gospel, praying that they would understand the nature of his ministry, the nature of his sacrifice, praying that they would be able to receive him, not as just king of an earthly kingdom, but king of their hearts, king of all eternity. And what's so powerful about Jesus praying on this mountain isolated from everyone else are other verses in Scripture that we have, like Romans 8.34, which says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is a present activity of God. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus right there, praying for us next to God, that our hearts would be open, that we would do the will of the Father, that we would live in accordance to what God wants from us. Jesus is still praying for us. Now, Hebrews 7 uh, says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus got a way to pray, and Jesus is still praying for you and for me. I think about his example, and I wonder how does my life as a follower of Jesus Christ match the life of Jesus? 
How much am I praying? How much am I praying for the church? That we would be in tune with the will of God. That we would be step in step doing what God calls us to do. How much am I interceding for people in my life? People who don't know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Like I should be driven to my knees that friends of mine like Manny, who I love, would open his heart and receive the gospel. Like am I interceding the way that Jesus prayed? Am I praying for others the way that Jesus is praying for me? Powerful example. If Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, found it paramount to pray, we should go and do likewise. We should be men and women of prayer. There's another miracle that that takes place in verse 48 that gets way overlooked in this passage. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Now, in the day, if you're on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was, where we think this was taking place, this is what you'll see. You'll see uh, maybe uh, the Capernaum and, and Bethsaida, you'll, you'll see maybe a glimpse of a mountain. Maybe. Maybe you can see it. If it's a clear day and everything's right, maybe. Jesus is praying, and it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., meaning that it is the darkest part of the night, meaning also that Jesus had been praying from the time he dismissed them, which is why he's been praying somewhere between 9 and 12 hours at this point. And the Scripture says Jesus sees them that they are straining. Very important to have this mindset. It's very dark. Nobody should be able to see anything, but Jesus is watching his followers. It says, verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. This is the idea that they're struggling at the oar, that they're, they're fighting, that they're, they're just doing everything. Their muscles are sore because they've just been rowing and rowing, and they're trying to make their way on this four-mile track, something that shouldn't have taken that long, and they're still fighting making their headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So it's the idea of a storm, waves coming up over them. They're fearful. They're tired. They've been up all day. They were tired before they got in the boat. Everything's going wrong. They're in the middle of a storm. Jesus sees them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. What we see is that Jesus shows up in the midst of their storm. Now, pass by is, is a word that we can easily misunderstand because in our mind, whenever we say Jesus is passing by, it's kind of like Jesus walking on the water and being like, hey, that stinks, moves on about his life, right? That's not what the text means. That's not what the verb means here. It should be taken as in the sense of pass before or pass in view rather than go beyond. So it's the idea that Jesus is showing up. He's like, hey, guys, what's going on? And he's hanging out. And you can, you can see the picture, right? Like Jesus is no big deal. The elements, the storm, no big deal to him. But to the disciples in the boat, they're fighting for their life. They're fighting and they're losing. They're tired, exhausted, worn out. They're scared. They're afraid. They don't think they're ever going to make it. They're ready to give up. And Jesus shows up right in the midst of their storm. Jesus always detects his people. He always notices his people. He always sees his people in the middle of the storm. I'm positive that some of you came in here and in your life, you're facing a storm. 
It could be at work. It could be at your home. It could be in your marriage. It could be in your relationships. It could be with your health, your finances. You might feel lonely, isolated, scared. You might have anxiety, panic. All these storms coming on you. It feels like the waves are crashing in. You feel like you're all alone and nobody notices. Understand this. Regardless of how dark it might seem, your God notices you. He sees you when you should not be seen. And he is there with you. His presence is your gift in the midst of your pain. And not only does he see you, not only does he detect you, we have the promise that in Christ we will be delivered through the storms. So many times when we're in a storm, Jesus is there and we want answers to why we're going through the storm and all Jesus does is he gives us his presence in the middle of the storm. I read this quote that absolutely blew my mind this week. It says, he comes to us in our need. He will even use the element we fear as the path for his feet. They're terrified of the storm and the sea. And Jesus uses their fear and the object of their terror as the pathway to come and make his presence known. How true is that for all of us? When we're in moments of desperation, when we don't have anything, and we're brought to our knees, and we pray, and we say, God, where are you? And in the midst of our pain, he just shows up. He is there for us. As the passage continues, it says, when they saw him, you would think that they would be relieved. That's not exactly how it played out, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. This is hilarious if you understand what, what all this has taken place. So the culture for the fishermen of that time is that whenever they were about to die, when the sea was about to swallow them up and take up their life, they believed that a ghost made their presence towards them. Like they would see a ghost, and it would take them, and it would be the end of their life, right? So they're struggling. They've been struggling all night, and they all see this ghost figure. And they all start screaming at the top of their lungs like a bunch of scared little boys and girls, right? Just terrified. The ghost was coming to take them away. So they saw him and were terrified. And Jesus is like, what, what, chill out, calm down. But immediately, this sense of urgency, immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, aside, don't be afraid. Calm down, little girls, it's okay. I got you. Quit being scared. Quit panicking, child. I got you. Quit letting all these elements overwhelm you. I'm here. It's I. It's me. It's, it's Jesus. And what's ironic about this is just a, a few days earlier, maybe a few weeks, they had experienced another storm on the sea. And Jesus was calm. In fact, he was taking a nap in the bottom of the boat. The disciples came down and said, we're about to die. Jesus looks at them and says, what is your problem? He tells the sea to be still, and they all marvel at his power over the sea. So Jesus walks up, and he's like, do you not remember what happens when I'm present in the storm? I speak, and the storm calms down. I speak, and everything is smooth. Remember who I am. It is I, the Lord. 
And I wonder how many of us, when a storm comes at us, maybe we lose a job. Maybe we have to isolate. Maybe there's another shutdown. We just want to panic at a shutdown. Jesus looks and says, do you not remember the storms I have gotten you through? Do you not remember that my presence brings peace? Do you not remember that it is I, the Lord, who is with you? And you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm still going to be with you in the valley. And I will use your object of fear and terror as a path for my feet to bring you close to me. My presence is here for you. Jesus speaks up. It is I, be not afraid. And he calls the disciples to courage, and he calls you and me to courage as well. He does not want us to be afraid of what life throws at us. He wants to be a people of faith. Over a hundred times in Scripture, Jesus called his followers to be strong and courageous. Time and time and time again, he says, be not afraid, be with me. Be understanding that I am with you. He doesn't offer us deliverance apart from him. He offers himself in the midst of whatever we face. Look at Psalms 18. It says, but they, or I'm sorry, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The psalmist understands who God is for him. The Lord, his strength, his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his God, his rock, his refuge, his shield, his salvation, his stronghold. Who are we as children of God to panic when things don't go our way? Who are we as children of God to just cry out in fear, screaming like immature children who are terrified when things don't go our way? God is speaking to us and says, no matter what comes at you, I am with you. Deuteronomy 31.6 says it this way. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you and he will not leave you. Or forsake you. What Jesus wanted his disciples to realize is that he was with them and he would protect them in the storm. What we have to realize as people of God, as followers of Christ, is that Jesus is with us and he will protect us from the storms. There is something missing in Mark that is found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14 talks about what happens next after Jesus speaks to them. Peter. If you don't know Peter, he likes to put his foot in his mouth. He's obnoxious, type A. He's a go-getter. Jesus is, is appearing before them, and as he's appearing, everybody's scared and Peter speaks up. This first time he really speaks up in Scripture. First time he's isolated. And he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I love this. It makes no sense for man to walk on water. It made no sense that Jesus was walking on water, but Peter knew something about Jesus. He knew it was better to be on the water in the storm with Jesus than to be in a boat which he thought was safe himself. 
He knew it was better to follow the command. He says, if it's you, command me, and I'm coming to you. Where you are is where I want to be. Command me, and I'm coming. Jesus looks at him and says, come. Come on. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. He sees Jesus. Lord, command me. Give me your word. Tell me what to do. I'm doing it. Come. I'm coming. Focus on Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the wind comes. The rain comes. And instead of focusing on Jesus, he focuses on the elements of the storms, the things beyond his control. He begins to sink. I love what happens next. Immediately. All throughout Scripture, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. How many times has God delivered you and me from storms in our life in the past? How many times has God smoothed out a relationship issue or a marriage issue, a financial issue, a health issue? How many times? And how many times in the future are we going to have a storm come our way? And all of a sudden we're going to be like, oh no, I don't know how we're going to make it. Oh, what's going to happen here? And we throw our hands up in panic and fear and Jesus says, be calm. It is I, the Lord, who is with you. I know for me, I don't want to live a life thrown to and from by everything that doesn't go my way. I want to live a life confident in faith for what God has done for me in the past, what he's doing for me in the present, and what he will do for me in the future. I want to live a life of gratitude because I understand the presence of God is always with me. So the question is, how do I move from that to what it says in verse 33? Then those who were were in the boat worshiping him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him. Do you understand this? They didn't understand with the fishes and the loaves. They didn't understand with this miraculous event. But when they saw Jesus was with them and he calmed the seas, all they could do was worship. They worshipped him in spirit and truth. They worshipped him as the God of their salvation, their deliverer, and they finally got it. Their hearts were opened. How do we live a life that truly gets it? How do we live grateful for all of the things that God has done, is doing, and will do? The first thing I think we need to do is we need to focus on the commands of God. We need to focus on his word. It's so easy to focus on other things. What we think is right in our job. What we think is right in our relationships. What we think is right with our health. And we forsake the commands of God. I commend you for being in church today because the word of God tells us that we are to gather together. That it is bad for us to be isolated from the family of God. There's a reason for that. Because we were not meant to do life by ourselves. God called us into a family. He called us to be a part of his body. I get it. Some people don't want to come to church right now. We're doing everything we can to make this place as safe as possible. We want it to be safer than everywhere else and maybe your home. And some of you, we might be safer than your own home. Follow his commands. 
at home, at work, in the way that you treat one another, in the way that you believe, follow his commands, focus on his commands. And you can live a life that's on a pathway of pleasing God. The second thing, focus on his capacity. So many times we allow our own personal limitations to dictate our praise and gratitude. We worship a God who walks on water and calms the storm with a word. We worship a God who has overcome sin, death, and the grave. We worship a God whose power is unmatched and unparalleled. We worship a God who has already given us victory and a clear path out of every storm we will ever face. We need to focus on his power and not our limitations because God's throne is not moved by any election, by any pandemic, or anything we face in life. We need to focus on the capacity of God. And we need to focus on his control. It is the Lord's will that will not be stopped or thwarted. There is nothing that can stop the power of God and his plans and his purposes. And things may not go our way, but in the midst of that, we need to focus on the fact that he is in control of everything. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. What are our storms to a God like ours? We need to focus on the fact that he is always in control. As we focus on his commands and his capacity and his control, what we're able to do is find rest. Not because we've been delivered from everything, but we are delivered through everything with the presence of Christ in our hearts and our lives.